Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Over a period of 16 years, from 1990 to 2006, I was honored to conduct four interviews with the late Gore Vidal, two of which involved co-host Richard A. Lupoff. This is chronologically the third of those interviews, conducted on October 5, 2000, while Gore Vidal was on tour for his novel, The Golden Age, the final in a series of seven novels exploring American history entitled Narratives of Empire. You state in your afterword to this book that historians can no longer be trusted to write history because they've become ideologues and fiction is more true than what's called nonfiction, including this book. I don't think I quite said that as a generality. Obviously, fiction is fiction and history is history. What I am doing is something that is rarely done, which is that the history that I use is as much as precise and accurate as I can make it. I have fictional characters only to speculate upon the historical figures. I'm not going to enter the mind of Abraham Lincoln who looked out the window and wondered why on earth he thought to himself, why did I marry that woman? I don't go in for that since I don't know what Lincoln thought. I'm not going to pretend I do, but I can have a fictional character wonder why did he marry her, and we can then get into it. That's why they are historical novels. The history is history. The novel is the novel. It's also to deal in motives. And finally, I think history itself is always moot. You can never say you have the the truth about anything. What you have is agreed upon facts. So what you make of it is interpretation, and I think of it as a kind of libretto, and the fictional characters are the music that you add to it uh, to bring it to life. Germans have a wonderful word, which we lack, Einfühlen. It's sometimes translated as empathy, but it's not really. It's the ability to get yourself into the past and realize you're in a totally foreign place, totally alien. They're so different from us, and you just don't put your friends in funny costumes and pretend that you were doing the Civil War. You're not. But you can, if you have a certain instinct for it, begin to project yourself into them. It's a kind of trance or no proper word for it. Do you find yourself in, in a trance when you're writing sometimes that you are no longer living in the year 2000, that it is 1939 or it is 1854 or whenever? Oh, yes. I think that the text does that to you. And then I do an enormous amount of reading, which keeps me in the past. Yes, I have complained about American historians, particularly academic historians, that they are essentially serving the empire. We call them in the trade court historians. There is no president that they cannot worship. We have never done a wrong act in the history of the United States. One thing they never were able to answer, which I think I have dealt with in the golden age, 
idea of 1940 to 1950, Roosevelt, Second World War, Truman, the Cold War, dropping the atom bomb. They have never explained why the Japanese attacked us at Pearl Harbor. We never get any explanation of that. It's just a, a deranged act. For a long time, we bestialized uh, the Japanese. You should have seen some of the stuff that we were given. I was in the Second World War in the Pacific, and the propaganda we were fed about this insane race, you know, that must be destroyed. Why did they attack us at Pearl Harbor? Try and get that out of a court historian. He can't tell you that Roosevelt deliberately provoked them into attacking us because he wanted to go to war on the side of England against Hitler, a virtuous thing to do, but 80% of the American people did not want to go to war against Hitler or anybody in Europe. So he had to provoke the Japanese, who had a treaty with Germany and with Italy, that if one got into a war, the other two would join. By provoking them and giving them an ultimatum in, I think it was July of 41, through Cordell Hall, to the two Japanese emissaries, we ordered them out of China. They'd been in China since 37. They had conquered Manchuria. We ordered them out, and if they didn't get out, we would stop their oil. We were their main supplier of oil and scrap metal. They had no choice but to attack us. Then while we were semi-knocked out, move south to the Java oil fields, which belonged to the Netherlands, kicking over Hong Kong and Singapore on the way. That's what that was about, his provocations, which he still won't face. I've actually had reviews saying to suggest that Roosevelt provoked Pearl Harbor is uh, nonsense. Well, he did. <laughs> In your book, The Golden Age, you do discuss that whether Roosevelt thought they would attack Pearl Harbor or Manila is still open to question. But you also have another character, when this is mentioned, say, well, you know, Hitler is getting lost at this point, fighting on two fronts. Wouldn't these people feel that the U.S. would get lost fighting on two fronts? Well, we certainly would. We did fight on two fronts. Hitler would have gone away in due course, having done a lot of damage. But it was his genius. You know, at one point, the British intelligence had the means and were all set to assassinate him. <laughs> this was about a year or so after we got in the war. And finally, the high command of the Allies, which included us by then, decided that it was better to keep him alive because he was making all these mistakes. Like, he attacked Russia in the winter. Now, any child could tell him, you just don't <laughs> attack Russia when it's winter time. Napoleon Bonaparte had his head handed to him, and Hitler did too, because it was that attack on Russia that destroyed Hitler. The Russians beat him on the ground, and we beat the Japanese in the air and at sea and atomic bomb. You suggest that Hitler was beaten or being beaten anyway without our assistance, and this strikes me as creating one of the strangest combinations of bedfellows of our time, because uh, Patrick Buchanan wrote a book advancing exactly this theory within the past year. Pat Buchanan, I must say, has been reading a great deal of Gore Vidal. Uh, <laughs> I have been doing this for years. Uh, strange bedfellows, indeed we are. He is an unattractive political figure. However, he, he's lashing around trying to find themes that connect with the American people. The American people are 
very pacific. They don't want to get mixed up in other people's wars. They want to be left alone to do their own thing. And they certainly don't want to fight in countries that they, they don't even know where they are. He's picked up on that. He's also picked up on my themes of corporate America's control of the country and of the political system. That he's also a fascist is has nothing is irrelevant. <laughs> when he is on this my side, which is which is the side of virtue. In the Golden Age, I found the following quote uttered by one of your characters, uh, Senator Day, and it strikes me that this quote goes to the heart of things you've been saying for the past well fifty years. Fifty years. Here's the quote: "The real political struggle in the United States since the Civil War." has been between the peaceful inhabitants of the nation with their generally representative Congress and a small professional elite totally split off from the nation, pursuing wealth through wars that they invent and justify and resonate for others to die in. Yes, that's my theme. And that is also the theme of a majority of the American people who have to be tricked into these wars, as Roosevelt tricked the Japanese into attacking us. That Roosevelt's ends may have been admirable, we can dispute. Are there actual ends in life or are there only means? The problem there is that uh, the people left alone would not have expanded. We would not have taken over the Philippines, let's say, at the time of Theodore Roosevelt. So this small elite, mostly from the Northeast, what I'm giving, basically, what Senator Day in the book is doing, it's the party of the people, hence the word populist. And the Gore family in Mississippi, well, they're all through the South, but my branch was in northern Mississippi, uh, were very much ruined. They were not slave owners, and they were unionists. They did not want secession. But they formed the party of the people and in the late 19th century. And it became a great force in the land, and it was co-opted by the Democrats. And we gave them William Jennings Bryan three times, candidate for president. But what he is saying is reflective to this day. You might divide Americans between Jeffersonians and Hamiltonians. Jefferson is to mind your own business and in the pursuit of happiness. And Hamilton is more wealth, more banks, more controls. Hamilton is one, of course. Your new book is called The Golden Age. Uh, you, you described it as covering the years 1940 to 1950. My interpretation then is that the title must be an irony because it was an age in which the most horrendous events of history took place. You've detected the iron in my gold. <laughs> <laughs> However, it has a double meaning. There were 13 million of us in the Second World War. I came back from the Pacific in 46 and got out. I'd written a novel, which was published. It was the most exciting time culturally in the history of the United States, was 1945 to 1950. That's the golden age to which I advert, and I bring on stage Lenny Bernstein and Paul Bowles, Don Powell, Tennessee Williams. It was the most exciting time we had in the arts, and it lasted only five years. Because unbeknownst to us, and that is why I wrote The Golden Age, which shows exactly what is going on in the White House, Harry Truman inventing the Cold War with Dean Acheson. So while we are merrily playing in the gilded light, uh, 
of what looked like a permanent noon, he was replacing the old republic with a national security state. He was shouting, the Russians are coming. He was arming us to the teeth. He imposed loyalty oaths on everybody in government. Then that spread to everybody who taught school. By 1950, then we intervene in a Korean civil war in which we have our head handed to us, collective head. Meanwhile, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. Joe McCarthy takes over. Blacklist, censorship. It has been a squalid and sorry time since 1950. Charles Beard neatly summed it up in one what we've been doing. Perpetual war for perpetual peace. We are not allowed, even now that Russia is out of the business, we're not even allowed a year or two of peace. We've got to tear Colombia to bits, which we're now doing. We've got to be involved in a war with Syria, ordering Milosevic out. What is he to us? That is the party of the people. Pardon me, you, you meant Serbia, I take it. Serbia, did what uh, I think. Uh, Syria, which, which, is oh, another, Syria. which is another wonderful <laughs> Another area. problem, another wonderful place for a war. Indeed. Your characters talk as if they're totally prescient. They know what's going to happen. And I'm not speaking specifically of your fictional characters, but sometimes your non-fictional ones as well. And I'm wondering how much of that is real and how much of that is, is Gore Vidal just putting the future in the past? Oh, no, I, do, I don't do that at all. That's Marguerite Yursenar, who has her Emperor Hadrian say as he comes to England, I cannot help but think that someday this little island may be a great world empire. <laughs> how in the third century, second century, he, he would be able to see that. I don't do any of that. If they seem prescient, the people of the ruling class, particularly the ones I deal with, are looking ahead. Now, for instance, uh, I was taken to task by a new republic, or new repulsive as we call it, a uh, reviewer <laughs> about, I have Herbert Hoover quite eloquently denounced Roosevelt, to whom he's lost an election, so he's, he's understandably bitter, but he said Roosevelt is going in the same direction as the totalitarian countries. And we are going to end up with less and less freedom for the people and more and more power for corporate America. He didn't use that, quite that phrase, but that's what he meant. And uh, I see a terrible time as we drift in the same totalitarian direction as the Bolsheviks and the Nazis. He couldn't have said that, said my review. I love these reviewers, prescient. You know, they, they try to think they're even competent. They know no history, but they have lots of opinions. Well, Herbert Hoover said it. It's a direct quotation from him. I don't put anything in the mouth of Herbert Hoover, anything significant, uh, that he didn't say. But since nobody knows any history and hardly know who Herbert Hoover was, I'm trying to give day by day, year by year, the decade in which we lost the republic, gained a world, a global empire, and fought the Second World War and in perpetual war for perpetual peace. And you're going to hear a lot of voices. Some may seem prescient and uh, some may not. But there are many different opinions, and I don't agree with any of them sometimes, but I am recording them. Uh, you mentioned Gore Vidal, uh, the American intervention in the Korean War, or the Korean Civil War. This raises something which has puzzled me for decades, and maybe you could clarify it. I'd be most grateful. Shortly before that war broke out, Dean Acheson, Secretary of State, 
gave something that is uh, referred to as the map briefing. At the National Press Club. If you would tell us, first of all, what was the key mistake, if it was a mistake, in that briefing, and why you think that happened? Well, the falsification is making anything out of that speech. It was just another one of his echoing speeches, really, about our being in charge of the world, drawing the line. And he gave a list to the National Press Club in a speech of those places which we regarded as in our national interest. And they were everywhere. They're miles from home. He neglected, his critics said later, to mention Korea, which triggered the villainous Stalin and the vicious Mao Zedong. Ah, the Americans are not going to protect it. Now we'll drive the North Koreans who are communists. We will drive them into a war against the South Koreans who want to be benign capitalists and we will destroy them. Well, that was not the motivation. North Korea, over the objections of Stalin, tried to reunite the peninsula. Stalin tried to talk them out of it. Mao Zedong said this is a very bad idea because he saw himself getting involved in a war with the United States because he couldn't allow us to have troops so near to his borders. It's the megalomania of the American empire, and I'm afraid the sort of dimness of our historians, that they fell for the official line. Had Atchison, who was in charge of the world, naturally, as we must be in charge of, the, of everything, just made a little goof. He'd forgotten to say Korea, so that was a green light. The world doesn't work like that. The world is not sitting around listening to secretaries of state make speeches to the National Press Club, which I just addressed a few days ago and was talking on these subjects, and somebody got up and said, you know, you're standing right where Dean Atchison stood. <laughs> <laughs> you have a character named Emma, who's part of the McCarthy wing of the anti-communists. Mm. Something I've always wanted to know, Joseph McCarthy, was he an out-of-control puppet of the ruling elite? Was he a stalking horse? Why was he allowed to go on, or was he just on his own? I think he was on his own. I think the right wing in America found him very useful, particularly when the attacks on Alger Hiss, well, Alger Hiss was already sinking by then, but what they wanted to do, uh, and all reactionaries wanted to do, was reverse the New Deal. And the idea of intellectuals in politics, the idea of Social Security, which they fought in 1935, as they did the health care thing of the Clintons, you know, they're there forever against the people. I think McCarthy pleased them because he was attacking uh, intellectuals and politics, attacking the New Deal as, as full of, they complained about it being socialist, <laughs> would to God it had been more socialist. It was a very fragile thing to begin with. And uh, I think they took, the right-wing Republicans took him, were very happy that he was muddying everybody. Then he went so far as to attack the army and Eisenhower decided to blow the whistle. <laughs> And as Richard M. Nixon once said, you know, General Eisenhower was a far more sly and devious man than people suspected. And I mean those words in their very best sense. <laughs> <laughs> Take a loop off. One of the people that Joe McCarthy went after was a character named George Marshall, world-renowned and, and known to every schoolboy when I was a schoolboy, nowadays largely a forgotten man. 
Not forgotten in Europe, because the Marshall Plan was what bailed them out after uh, they were devastated by the Second World War. This is the United States of amnesia, and uh, everybody's forgotten. And it's rather clever of our ruling class. While we have been ha waging perpetual war for perpetual peace for the last 50 years, $7.1 trillion since 49 have gone for war, during which time we had no real enemy except the ones that we created. In spending that much money and attention on war, we neglected to educate the people. We have the worst educational system of any first world country, and we have no health system, which every first world country has. That was deliberate design, so no one knows anything. Why do you think I have spent 40 years writing the history of the United States as seen through one family? Because we have not only a fascinating history, but what is given to us is so carefully distorted that uh, the New York Times could actually say it is ridiculous to think that the Japanese were trying to surrender before the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Well, everybody knows it was around at the time that they were. They started in May of 45, meeting with Alan Dulles in Switzerland. We were agreeable, except we'd said unconditional surrender, and they wanted one condition to keep the emperor. It, we're still debating that with them. Tokyo was totally destroyed, and Truman dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, not to end the war. He, he was lying already, saying, one million men will die. Nimitz said, no, we don't even have to invade. They, they will... They will collapse. And so it was dropped because he wanted to scare Stalin. It was at Potsdam that he got word, in the last conference we ever had with Stalin, right after Yalta, that the thing worked and that we were going to use it and that would, uh, we didn't need the Soviet in the war. I was thinking as I was reading that section in your book, The Golden Age, I was thinking that the only thing good that came might have come out from dropping the two bombs was that the devastation was so great that people were afraid to drop it again. And I wonder if, if I, that's true. I hope true. you're touching wood during this. <laughs> touching wood. Thus far. That's thus far. far. Yeah. And I keep, I keep wondering about that. Could that have been perhaps the only good byproduct that came out of that? Well... I think every mushroom cloud has a silver <laughs> lining, as Ronald Reagan might say. You have one character, Clay, comment to another in 1950 when asked about John F. Kennedy's prospects for president 10 years later that, oh, don't worry about Kennedy. He's not going to live that long. Was that the perception at the time? Yes, indeed it was. Also the perception in the family. He was administered the last rites on two occasions. He had no adrenal function, Addison's disease. He also had a bad back. He had everything wrong with him. They called him Yellow Jack, and he was very, very skinny and gaunt, and nobody thought he'd live. But his father paid for a new procedure for Addison's disease, which they would put something on the flesh of his pelvis, a sort of pill, which would be good for about a month, supplying him with adrenaline, and he became normal after that fairly normal. One theory which I've been developing myself, and when I read Gore Vidal, I say, clearly I'm not the first person to think of this, is that things don't happen. That is to say, discrete events don't really happen. There's a great woven tapestry in which everything's connected to everything, and you can pull a thread at one corner, and there will be a twitch. 
way at the other end. It's a good image, yes. I think things are of a piece. I stick to Washington in these books because that is where our drama is enacted. Henry James called Washington back in the 19th century the city of conversation. When I was a kid in the 30s, uh, it was known as the Whispering Gallery. It was nothing but, uh, oh, so-and-so is, is having an affair with so-and-so, and it looks like this one will be the next Secretary of Agriculture, and he's backed by the railroads. And it's constant. We had a very good idea, in retrospect, of what was going on. Uh, not only in the private lives of, of the principal figures, like when Crown Princess Martha of Norway moves into the White House, and Missy Lehan, the president's principal mistress, retired with a stroke and uh, died of a broken heart, they said. We knew all of that. We knew about Franklin and Lucy Mercer, who had been Eleanor Roosevelt's social secretary. She said, you know, if you want a divorce, I'll give you one, but I'll, you'll have to raise the five children, and you'll never have a political career. And he officially got rid of her. It, all this stuff that comes along in the novel was stuff that I lived through and remember and was stunned to find that so much of the gossip was true. Prescience is not what I go in for, my, my characters don't. If you notice, everybody's wrong most of the time about who's, be, who's going to be elected, what we'll do, we're going to do in this policy or that policy. How do you think the Beltway, living within the Beltway, has changed between 1950 and 2000? Do you think the same stuff is going on in terms of people kind of ignoring the fact that nothing exists, people don't exist outside the Beltway? The ruling classes don't pay a lot of attention to the people except when they must fool them into fighting a war or paying taxes. I'd say the difference in the last 50 years is it's much more dysfunctional now, the ruling class, totally unfocused. We have no foreign policy because we don't know what we're doing. The people now who, who hold the offices, they're not necessarily the rulers, but they're as badly educated as everybody else. To have McNamara finally confess he never understood what the Vietnam War was about, I knew that at the time. Anybody who knew anything about <laughs> Southeast Asia. I remember I used to go on television a great deal and argue with the imperialists from the government. I remember Congressman Judd, he'd once been to China and he was a great expert. And I said, well, how did you find out? So, oh, I talked to the cab drivers, he said. And yet he didn't know what the Buddhists were and why they were setting fire to themselves in uh, South Vietnam. The ignorance at the top in the United States is just horrendous. And I saw that half of Congress prides itself, particularly the Republican half, on not having passports, not having ever been out of the United States. Oh my God. I think W's only been to Mexico. And, uh, <laughs> which isn't, is all, is which isn't all that different from Texas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, the other night, uh, Richard Rulinski and I were discussing your new, your new book, The Golden Age. And he mentioned someone that you had mentioned, some general who was involved in a coup in the 1930s. And said, well, of course, that was Smedley Butler. Uh, again, and being of my age... I remember not Smedley Butler as a living person, but as a well-known figure. He seems to have dropped totally out of history. He's inconvenient. Part of writing court history is anything of interest that we ought to know 
For instance, he was the co commanding general of the Marine Corps, and he finally wrote a book. Very interesting man. He's son of a senator, and he knew the ways of the great. And he finally said, I was used essentially as an enforcer for the City National Bank and Standard Oil. He said, I, I occupied Shanghai. I occupied the uh, Dominican Republic, Nicaragua. I was a hitman. I was an enforcer for the banks and big oil. I operated in three continents, and Al Capone only operated in three Chicago districts. <laughs> <laughs> then he was asked by, at the time of the New Deal, when it was starting around 33, 34, he was approached, would he serve as the leader of a coup to get rid of Franklin Roosevelt? This is totally obscured by now. Couldn't happen in America, didn't happen in America. What ought not to be, is not. That's how we do our history. You mentioned that Hopkins talks about that in 1940, that there's uh, a presumptive coup going on. Is that that's the one you're talking about? No. Well, it's it could different. be. I don't know what Hopkins was talking about. Robert E. Sherwood, who wrote the Roosevelt and Hopkins and was intimate with both of them at that time, they had feared there would be some kind of German, probably German-American demonstration at the time of the election. What I do is what was the gossip at the time? Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt were talking about the possibilities of a coup at the time of the November 1940 election, when he was uh, running against Wilkie. All I'm doing is giving a sense of what people talked about. The fact that there was no coup, and probably none was planned, is aside from the point. I'm creating the atmosphere of the times. The hacks won't do that, because they start out with a thesis. This is a perfect country. This is a great leader. And nothing like this could ever happen in America anyway. Well, it is the task then, now we come back to your opening statement, it is the task then of a novelist to tell the truth, because I have the freedom to do that in a way that someone who wants tenure can't. Uh, getting back to uh, America's entry into the Second World War, how important was the so-called Atlantic Charter? And for the sake of, of listeners too young to remember that, what was the Atlantic Charter? Well, it was freedom from want, freedom from fear, freedom uh, for freedoms. It was uh, cooked up by Roosevelt and Churchill on a battleship around 1940, 41. I believe it was 40. 40, yes. yeah. It was just rhetoric. I, I mean, we had to have, you know, something on our banner. And, and another phrase of the time, which was controversial, as, as I remember as a very young person, uh, something called Lend-Lease. FDR, whom I very much admire for the New Deal and whom I don't like at all for his imperial longings and getting us into the war, was acting as best he could to help England against Hitler, which I think is, was a virtuous thing to do and a necessary thing to do. But we were much more used to them uh, giving them 50 destroyers under a lend-lease. In other words, we would lend them 50 destroyers and then they would allow us to lease parts of Nova Scotia and Bermuda and various bases in our hemisphere. And he tried to make it look like it balanced out because Congress was totally against it. It was really isolationist. So he, he tricked everybody there. And now that was good trickery. I, I don't mind if it, I think it's sensible. And he was supporting England. And then, then he started, as you will find as, as the book goes along, 
he and Hopkins are getting military aid to Russia and food, and we are really supplying everybody. That should have been our role instead of going into the war. If they are having wars over there, let them have wars over there. We will help the side we like, but we should stay out ourselves. We didn't. Many people died. What about uh, the charge then that the Holocaust might have even been worse? I mean, I, it's hard to imagine more Jews dying, but maybe more Jews and gypsies and, and homosexuals and other peoples would have died as well in that's, the camps. That's a, that's a difficult one because it didn't get bad until we entered the war. If you remember, Hitler was uh, allowing, well, driving Jews out. He was also... He thought uh, he could make some money out of it, so the, the Nazis were taking money from Jews to, to allow them to escape their clutches. It was thought that our entry into it made it worse. That that's when he, they really started the Auschwitz, and that's when they started the gas chambers, and so on. I don't think we'll ever know what that history really was, but uh, I don't know that our entry into it might have made it worse. Certainly, there were things we could have done, which once we were in, he didn't do, and he was, Roosevelt had to deal with a very anti-Semitic State Department, and there was no way he could control them, or at least he didn't try very hard. When that ship came with the, um, with the refugees, and we sent the ship back and sent the, the Jews aboard that to a certain death, that was a very ugly episode in our history, which is also passed over by the professional historians. They have to be driven to discuss that. Where does uh, William Randolph Hearst come into this whole situation? Oh, well, he's glorious, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a major figure in two earlier books in the series, uh, Empire and Hollywood. In Empire, it was really about a duel between him and Theodore Roosevelt, which one is going to be the dominant figure in the United States. And uh, Hearst, who discovered that if there is no news, you invent it, and he takes it a step further when he said, there is no history unless it's based upon the news, and I create the news, therefore I am history. Theodore Roosevelt, quite the continent, I have this as a final dialogue in Empire. Roosevelt said, no, no, history, history is made by me or made by the presidents. And uh, Hearst then offers him a contract to write a book when he's out of the presidency. <laughs> <laughs> rather upstaging him totally. But Hearst was also Mussolini's publisher and Hitler's publisher. Yes, he was very ecumenical. <laughs> and uh, he, he was a wonder. What he did and what I use him for in these books, aside from the fact he's very colorful, is that uh, through understanding Hearst, you really begin to understand how fragile our knowledge of, uh, of the past, our own past, is. I asked Arthur Schlesinger, who was invited to work at the White House by Bobby Kennedy, and I said, I saw Arthur a few months after he got his office in the White House, and I said, well, what have you discovered now that you're working for a president and not just writing about presidents? What's, what, what has struck you the most? And we said, the primary sources. We've always depended upon newspapers. Now that I know what the reality is and what the newspapers are printing, I wonder if anything at all that I've ever said about Franklin Roosevelt, his life of Roosevelt, or Jackson, <laughs> where do I go to check anything out? So that was the first admission from a real historian, professor, 
Is there an answer to that question? No. You have to have Ein Fuhlen and write a novel. <laughs> Why did Franklin Delano Roosevelt choose Harry Truman? Many people ask that question in the Golden Age, and we kind of get vague answers. Uh, the, the best one being, well, he wanted to satisfy the party bosses. Partly the bosses is mostly the South. It would have been Henry Wallace, and Henry Wallace was hated by the Southerners. And the Southerners were the dominant uh, group in the party. Even so, if Wallace, had he fought for it, he had labor pretty solidly behind him, and he probably could have got it. Roosevelt was old. He was tired. He knew he wasn't going to live out his term. But he was hoping for the best, and to make the election easier, it was easy to take this second-rate politician from Missouri as vice president. It certainly would have been tougher for him had he taken Henry Wallace who I think was probably the one great president that we might have had that we did not have. And he really was interesting, and we would never have had a Cold War with him. With Truman, just went straight to the Cold War as quickly as possible with his evil genius, Dean Acheson, who was very funny in his memoirs, which are most, most uh, present at the creation, very elegant work. And discussing all the lies that he told about the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, he said, sometimes I confess that we were clearer than truth. Isn't that a lovely phrase? Clearer than truth. We're lying to you. <laughs> lovely I was about to say it's a lovely phrase, but I don't know what it means. But you anticipated me. Yes, clearer than truth. There's a book that just, just surfaced talking about what might have been and uh, throughout history. And one of them based upon real-life documents, and one of them is a document, a letter or a telegram from Winston Churchill in 1945 wanting to continue the war directly and going right for Stalin. Are you familiar with that one? I would guess you're not surprised no, to I, hear that such a I'm not surprised, but it doesn't quite work because Roosevelt thought he could, could get along with Stalin. Churchill is the butler of the American president. He didn't realize that, but Roosevelt was no friend to England and no friend to anybody. The first thing he, he set in motion before he died, well, the last thing, the European powers must divest themselves of their colonial empires. And he told Churchill, he finally had a, a run-in, he said, well, India must be allowed to go. And Churchill, it was this very weird scene between them. Churchill said, well, I believe something, we must retain something, and... Roosevelt said, oh, no, no, colonialism is over. And Churchill said, well, what am I to do? Get on my hind legs like Fala and beg? And Roosevelt said, yes. I should mention an early, just in passing an earlier topic about the horrors of the nuclear bomb. Uh, I was in the Army in the 1950s. Fort Benning, Georgia, at the infantry school, we trained against a mock enemy wearing Russian uniforms, speaking Russian, and carrying Russian weapons. Gosh, that's clearer than truth. We had a classroom full of officers, and they showed us a training film, started showing a training film, which included, at that time, classified footage taken in Hiroshima right after the bomb fell, oh. and about... 15 minutes into what was to be a 45-minute film, 
the audience reaction was so vocal and and repelled and shocked by this that they stopped the film and changed the subject. I've never seen anything like that in my life. It's, it was 40, 45 years ago. I still see what I saw on that screen. And no one else has seen that film since, probably. Probably not. Gore Vidal, among your other credentials, are a strong credential as a science fiction writer. Science fiction writers deal with worlds of if. And again, Richard Walensky and I the other night were chatting about the worlds of if of 1944 and 45, there was a peculiar sequence of events. Henry Wallace was vice president. The Democratic Convention nominated Harry Truman to be the next vice president. There was then an election, an inauguration, and then Roosevelt died in the spring of 45. Suppose Roosevelt had died at some earlier point in that sequence, as, for instance, between the convention and the election, or between the election and the inauguration. Well, you mean when Henry Wallace would succeed? Yes, he would. Yeah. Well, there would have been no Cold War. This was the battle between... Truman kept him on in the cabinet as Secretary of Commerce. No, Secretary of Agriculture. I think he went back to that. But they had a, a, a real row because Wallace was the heir to the New Deal, and Truman wanted to stay on good terms with the New Dealers, but he didn't like them. And... Wallace saw that you could indeed do business with Stalin. Stalin was very eager to be accepted as a regular great power in the world. We broke, Truman specifically, and Atchison broke every agreement that made at Yalta. They were supposed to get $20 billion in reparations from Germany. They never got it. Then we divided, which Wallace would not have done. We divided Germany, and we put the three allied sections together and created the West German Republic, leaving Stalin with the poor part, which was Prussia. You see, nobody explains anything anymore. I mean, why the famous airlift? The Russians then said, well, Berlin is in our sector, and why should this be under four-power rule? So we're not going to allow you access. So we said, well, we are going to maintain the four-power rule, and so we had an airlift, material, food into Berlin, and eventually Stalin allowed us access. Why did this happen? We had divided Germany with over his dead body. He wanted a united Germany. He wanted his reparations money, and he wanted the four powers to jointly govern Germany. We split it. You can't find that in any American history book. Stalin, a mad tyrant, like Adolf Hitler wants to march to through France to the sea, and then he's going to bomb America. And he had no such intentions. His country is ruined. His people are, you know, starving. He had no such ambitions. But we had to justify our military buildup, a constant military buildup. We justify NATO, justify the foundation of the CIA. Uh, which was founded in order to control politically the Allies. It had nothing to do with protecting us from Russia. We wanted to make sure the Italians did not have a communist government in April of 1948, when the CIA's first great victory was the defeat of Togliatti. We were busy. One more forgotten 
figure from that era that I'd like to ask you about, a person who fascinated me at the time and who still intrigues me, uh, a senator and I believe at one time Secretary of the Air Force named Stuart Simonton. He was a sort of all-round figure. He thought about being president. Uh, he had great charm. He was very much interested in the Air Force, and I think he was one of the movers in the uh, idea of having an independent Air Force, because if you remember the Second World War, the United States Army Air Force, which had ceased to be became the Air Force of the United States. Symington was active in that. I know Joel McCarthy disliked him a lot, referred to him as sanctimonious stew. I don't remember that. Oh, uh, well. Richard Walensky. You spoke before about the lies that the American people were given regarding uh, Joe Stalin and the potential domination of the USSR throughout the world. And I remember when I was a teenager, we were scared. I mean, you know, we were we were uh, even even us us old lefty hippies still had that feeling of fear. And I only began to get over it when I went to Russia in 1969 and saw how poverty filled it was. You know, they had beautiful subways and thought police, but, I mean, it was not the United States. Well, you you know, could the, see what it was. It was a second world country with no military pretensions other than to be able to fight us if they had to. Uh, their misbehavior in Eastern Europe was simply fear of uh, encirclement, as they call it. So they go into Czechoslovakia and Hungary and put down revolutions in, in Germany, East Germany. But it was all in self defense. They were never dangerous to us, and our rulers always knew that. The break came when Jack Kennedy got in. Truman and Eisenhower were two old, crafty politicians, and they knew the Russians were, were good to use to frighten the people into military appropriations. But Jack believed it. He believed in the, he really believed that he wanted to bear any burden, you know, in his inaugural address, and he wanted to win the Cold War because he thought that this was really a, a very evil system that was endangering us. And that's where it was dangerous for us that he believed it, and hence that is why we were in Vietnam. Well, now the uh, Soviet Union has disappeared. It seems we're still getting propaganda about what great freedom lovers, to some degree, people like Berezovsky is, and... I'm under the impression he's a thug. Probably. And on the other hand, Gorbachev was first rate. I was in the Kremlin when he made his great speech. There were about 700 of us, non-communists, uh, from all around the world, and uh, in the arts and business and so on. And Gorbachev said, this is about 87, committed himself to unilateral disarmament, nuclear disarmament. And I was sitting next to Norman Mailer. He said, oh, he's lying. And I said, no, I think he means it. And he did. But that was a good and hopeful time. Who knows what's happening now? But on the other hand, if I may once again revert to my status as a member of the Party of the People, <laughs> what the hell business is it of ours? How they organize themselves. They are not going to drop a bomb on us unless we frighten them into it. And we can't go around saying we're going to kill a chief of state like Castro and not expect him to get irritable and to call on <laughs> aid so that we don't invade and kill him, which we were saying that we were going to do. 
hence the missile crisis, which really could have killed us all. There's a lot to be said for us populists. Uh, and here we are. Um, it's the year 2000, and we're very, very close to a presidential campaign. Uh, pardon me. We're very, very close to a presidential election. We are deeply enmeshed in the campaign. Uh, what is the Gore Vidal take on what's happening right now? I think corporate America has exposed its hand. I mean, they have only one political party, which is corporate America's Cosa Nostra with two right wings, one is Republican, one's Democratic. And they've got fairly typical candidates. My cousin Albert is far more intelligent, because Democrats, that wing picks more intelligent people. The Republican wing has always been known as the stupid wing. Uh, they <laughs> always pick impossible people, people who can't talk. I mean, I think it runs in the Bush family. They are dyslexic, and you can tell watching W's poor tortured face, you know, when he's trying to get a sentence out, that he is having trouble. Now, I don't want to mock him for his what nature has done to him, but I don't want a president who cannot figure out the language, who doesn't understand what words mean. You see that he's totally out of control reading the speeches they give him because his brain doesn't work that way. It's, it's set up, I don't know what in what way, but it's certainly not set up to deal with language. Well, a president has got to communicate and he's got to understand what, what he reads and what he's, or he has to read, period. There are th three people in this room here and some people in the control room out there, all of whom would agree with you. And when I watch George W., I can't watch him for that reason. It's painful. It's painful, and I keep wondering, how the hell can he even be in a contest? Uh, are the American people that stupid, that duped? No, they're not. They are worn out with meaningless elections, hideously expensive, meaningless elections. So fewer and fewer of them vote, and I think they've learned how to unplug. There's only one thing that should be discussed this, in this election. It is now is an opportunity with the famous enemy has retired to go into proto-capitalism and double-entry bookkeeping. Uh, the Russians are out of it, so why not convert from war to peace? This is what they should be talking about. At the moment, 51% of the federal government goes, uh, government's revenues go to the military. The military has now, in the last few weeks, been giving ultimatums to the civilian authorities that they want $30 billion a year, more than what they're getting, more than the 51%. That's the only thing to talk about. Instead, both Gore and Bush, each is in favor of upping the military budget. They should be talking about cutting it in half freeing all that money, those trillions that have gone for wars, that if we didn't start one, didn't exist, and uh, try to educate the people before it's too late. I mean, we're, you know, ignorance uh, uh, breeds like bacteria, and an ignorant uh, polity is not going to survive well. Do you have an opinion of the theory, I've heard bruited about by some people quite seriously, that uh, W. Bush is merely a figurehead and that Dick Cheney is going to be our de facto next president if the Republicans win this election. Now, the other rumor I heard in the whispering gallery of Washington, <clears throat> D.C., where I just was, 
was uh, this is a glorious rumor that Cheney will be off the ticket by November and Colin Powell will be on it. Cheney <laughs> will step down. Ooh, <laughs> that's an interesting one. <laughs> that's very interesting. I'm only repeating whispers. I know nothing. Gore Vidal, this book sums up, The Golden Age sums up your series of historical novels. Uh, now that you've done that, what can we see from Gore Vidal in the future? What kind of novel will you be writing next? Well, who knows? Who knows? Probably another invention. Like, uh, you're talking about science fiction. Uh, and I gather you did not read Smithsonian Institution. Oh, oh we both did. did. We interviewed for it, you for it. Well, that's right. We talked about it. <laughs> no, I was going to say, when you talk about science fiction, I thought to myself, well, I, that's, if that isn't science fiction, I don't know what well, of is. Of course it is. Of course yeah. it is. Not much science in it, but uh, magic anyway. I don't know. We'll see what the mood, what my voices tell me. A friend of mine, uh, to get a copy autographed of Life from Golgotha, the Gospel according to Gore Vidal, said, By God, ask him why he wrote it. That's the most blasphemous book I ever read. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be the most blasphemous book is, a, a, you know, is that something? Well, it's actually kind of serious theologically because uh, Jesus was not a Christian and would not have approved of anything that passes for Christianity now. He was a reformed rabbi, as far as we know. He didn't even think he was the Messiah, but we don't know. Uh, but he comes out of the Jewish tradition, uh, which is only for the Jews. St. Paul comes along and applies it to everybody. It makes it a universal uh, religion out of it, which would just have driven Jesus up the wall. And I have Jesus in the book, Marvin Wasserstein, who is, he escapes from the cross and ends up in, what is he, computer analyst That's in Los that. Angeles, yeah, biding his time to get back to Palestine and finish his work. And then I think by the time he gets there, the Japanese have taken over everything. <laughs> and the last pages are all in Japanese. Somebody asked me what it says. I said, well, it's a tribute to the Japanese mother goddess who is now in charge of Palestine. <laughs> not a science fiction writer, though. <laughs> no, not a science fiction writer. You did mention uh, uh, in a previous interview that at one time you and L. Ron Hubbard had the honor of being published by the same people. Ballantyne, yeah. And I vaguely remember meeting him. Like this was the time of Messiah, which came out in 54, 54, paperback 55 or 6. And Ian introduced us at one point, but I have no memories of him beyond that. I did think it kind of amazing that Dianetics book, they should make, make a religion out of it. That seemed really startling. But why not? There are a lot of sillier books that <laughs> have done really well. <laughs> Gore Vidal died 12 years after this interview. During those years, he continued to write essays and speak out as a political commentator, but The Golden Age was his final novel. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>